Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, Angry Planet listeners. This is Matthew Galt. Uh, if you're, this is your first time, I do various things advice. I'm joined by Jason Fields, the opinion editor at Newsweek. And also this week, we were talking about Niger, uh, which I was... Niger. 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 Yes, I know. What did you say? You said it was very British of me, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, the Niger Delta reference runs strong for English speakers. Uh, I'm going to be mispronouncing a lot of words today. Uh, we are joined by Annalise Bernard. Uh, can you give us your background? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, so I am the Director of Strategic Stabilization Advisors. We are a risk-based advisory group based in Washington, D.C., but we focus mostly on West Africa, although we are expanding at the moment also to look into the Southern Caucasus. Uh, previously, before I set up SSA, as we call ourselves. I was with the State Department. I was covered West Africa for quite a few years with the Department of State. Um, But more recently, from 2017 to 2019, I was the U.S. government stabilization advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Niamey, Niger, uh, where we were working mostly on counterterrorism work. And I can get into that later on. So you were a spy. Ooh, that's what my family thinks (laughs) uh when you're from los angeles and the only representation of u.s government abroad is really bad cia movies and tv shows (laughs) no offense jack ryan i definitely watch that show but it is trash um (laughs) uh then everyone thinks you're a spy especially when you don't have a really great response to a question um, now, the State Department does exist, and they do do some things other than visas. So that was what I was working on. But um, I was co-deployed with U.S. Special Forces for quite a bit of the time I was there. And as such, probably saw more than our actual agency folk were seeing on the ground. But uh, that's that's another conversation for a smaller audience, I would have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, what happened on July 26th? Yeah, so on July 26th, the world was shocked. No, not really. Um, On July 26th, the first democratically elected president of the Republic of Niger was deposed and held hostage by his own presidential guard uh, in what was at the time a very small and uh, intimate coup that was taking place within the presidential palace. By the next day, the entire security force apparatus of Niger seemed to appear to be in lockstep with the presidential guard. For those who are listening that don't know anything about these types of countries, presidential guard is no different than Secret Service. So that would have been like the head of the Secret Service taking the president of the United States hostage and declaring himself the head of the government in his as this person was being held hostage. 
Um, currently, today, President Bazoum is still has not resigned, and he is still being held hostage in the presidential palace by the junta that is now in place by the Puchists under the CNSP, which I'd have to get you that acronym and read it out loud somewhere. But um, for now, that's just what the ruling party has established themselves. Something like the Conseil National pour le Sauvegarde du Paix, which is actually, that's exactly what it is. It's the National Council for Safeguarding the Country. And who, who is in charge of uh, the military side of this? Who's in charge of the coup? Is there one person that's the face? It's an interesting question. So General Chiani, Abdulrahman Chiani, is the presidential guard, was the head of the presidential guard and is now right now the um, head of the military junta that is in control of Niger today. Um, Chiani himself is someone who made him, he, he's been the head of the presidential guard for the past two presidencies in Niger. Uh, he was very close to the former president, Mohamedou Asufu. And as such, kind of uh, just because things aren't very democratic, let alone like merit, there's no meritocracy in these kind of countries. He has remained in that position in kind of a chummy and plum position for the past 11 years, really just because he was so personally and therefore professionally close to the previous president, who himself was quite corrupt, but we can get into that in a little bit. The rumor was that he was about to get fired because President Bazoum didn't necessarily trust him and I can also get into how a lot of we see this across West Africa, but whenever you have a a democratic handover with, you know, what we would call baby democracy, um, a lot of times the previous ruler tries to kind of embed their guys, so to speak, with the new president who was democratically elected so that they can maintain some sense of control. Um, And uh, Bazoum and Asufu, when Bazoum was the minister of interior under under Asufu, there was always tension there mostly because Bazoum was always considered to be quite ambitious. He made it known quite early on that he was hoping to run for president at some point. So um, this was clearly Bazoum's way of starting to remove the old tentacles of the Asufi regime. And as such, uh, by removing and firing these people or having them retire, I suppose, um, Chiani himself did not like that. And the only thing that we know for sure is that he did not want to lose his position. And the one other thing to mention here that's context is that this is Niger, the least developed country in the world. Um, When you're not in a position of power, you don't have another position to roll into. You can't just roll over to a think tank like everyone in Washington does. Um, That just doesn't exist. So you're pretty much out of a job, which really is it's not that it's life or death necessarily for someone like chiani but it does mean that you know access to power but also you know the consistency of the salary is potentially not there so there was more raison d'etre for him to essentially take this a little more seriously what does Um, least developed mean you know i mean really what what does that mean on the ground for people niger so on all um in all statistics niger is at the bottom of the of the grid, uh, human development index in terms of both health and, um, also population growth, et cetera. Niger is at the very bottom with the highest growing, fastest growing population in the world. Their population growth is pegged at 3% every year. Their population is set to double in 15 years at this point. Um, but they're still quite a small country. It's going to double from 20 to 40 million, essentially. Um, you are having the poorest group of people on the face of the planet. Um, the people, the least access to resources, least access to governance, least access to security, 
There is no infrastructure in the majority of the country outside of the capital city. Even in the capital city, uh, there's only a handful of roads, for example. The power goes out every single day, and that includes even at a U.S. embassy, which should be considered you know, more of an insulated structure. We the, the power would go out usually three or four times a day, for example. So we are talking about when you imid- imagine the Sahara Desert and the poorest populations on the face of the planet, and you think of the images from National Geographic or the really famous photo that was taken actually of Sudan in the 80s of a child starving to death. Um, that is Niger today. Can you give us a little bit more background on, on Bazoum? Uh, was he popular? Was he unpopular? What was kind of his political project? And by what margin was he elected? Yeah. Um, so... Bazoum was always an interesting figure to rise through the ranks and make his way to presidency. He is not a political elite by birth. He's Arab. His mother is from the North and some dispute claims that he's not actually Nigerian because his mother, it's unclear if his mother was actually from Subha, Libya or not, but the borders get a little blurry up in the North. So sometimes you have communities that are a little bit more mobile. All that's to say is as an Arab, um, He's a minority in Niger and uh, has never really been accepted into mainstream Nigerian society by the majority uh, sub-Saharan population that comprise the population there, uh, which are ethnic, mostly ethnic Zarma, but you have a few other ethnicities in there. As such, he rose through the ranks because he was first a school teacher and then he got involved in, uh, as with the teaching unions, and made his way then through local politics up through national politics in the mid-aughts. Um, he became the Minister of Interior under former President Isuku. Uh, and as that in that position, he really was able to kind of um, galvanize the Western security response to better understand what the context was for not just Niger's needs at the time in terms of you know, not just, we don't just need counterterrorism, but we also need a counter counterinsurgency approach to managing the conflict that is on all of our borders and now penetrating the country itself. He really understood how to talk to Western donors is my point. And as such, he really brought in a lot of the Western aid and manifested that into a very strong counterterrorism um, operation in the country. Uh as someone who worked really closely with him, <laughs> um, that you know, got to work really closely with his chief of staff, but also him himself. Um, the U.S. government always found him to be their like prized child. You know, he was the cherry of the Western community, and obviously, that does not roll well with certain political and security elites in Yemen, but also with the Nigerian people who for as long as I can remember, have always been kind of hoping to throw off the yoke of that Western, quote, neocolonialism that very much existed under a French uh, post-colonial presence in the country, I should say. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is that given his role and how he kind of came to the top and then really quickly was able to consolidate the friendships with Western partners was um, it really did rub uh, political and security elites in Niamey the wrong way. There's always this sense of if they're not friends with me, then it's because I'm out of the sunlight type of vibe. And that was very clear with Bazoom. I would hear all the time from not just people within the Ministry of Interior, but people within the security forces of, we don't trust Bazoom. He's too much in the pocket of the Westerners. And um, that political elite vibe really kind of, I think, was one of the things that led to his oust in the end. 
it really sounds like he didn't have much of a chance. I mean, his odds weren't good. I mean, I don't mean mm. he hasn't, I mean, whether or not he had a chance to implement his policies, but. So as Minister of Interior, he had a lot of opportunity to implement a lot of policies that he ostensibly continued throughout the first couple of years of his tenure as president. Even from even when he was planning to run for office, there was a lot of talk inside Miami of we don't want the Zoom to run for office. We want there was the Minister of Agriculture at the time whose name I forget, but he was being put up there as a potential candidate. And then of course there's the main opposition figure who's been in exile for at least the past fifteen years, um, who's ethnic Fulani, um, which is another thing to talk about later on. But um these people were always egging for that position. So the point is is that across the country from what the U.S. considers to be very fair and transparent elections, Bazoom did win handedly in both the first round and the runoff of the Democratic elections. But in Niamey, you are always going to have a contrarian population that does not support the administration in power. And that was the same thing under the previous president, which is why Niger is also a country that is familiar with coups. So during the Sufu's tenure, there were coup attempts. And also in the past two years, aside from this successful one, there were two other coup attempts um, made on Bazoom's tenure. So I want to say this is not shocking at all that this coup happened, but also still quite shocking for Western partners who really kind of had a blind eye towards how unstable Niger's political situation is. Can we expand out a little bit and talk about... um the countries around and yeah. what is ECOWAS and why is it important in this story? And I think like some things were breaking the last time you and I talked, I think literally while we were having that conversation, uh, ECOWAS <laughs> issued a statement, right? Yeah. So firstly, ECOWAS for those listening that don't know, stands for the economic community of West African States very similar to NATO and the European Union in that it started as an economic community to create boundaries of free trade, free and unfettered trade between certain countries Uh, started with only a handful of countries. It grew to include 15 countries in West Africa. Notably, it does not include Chad, Morocco, Algeria, Libya, or Tunisia. So that's where it kind of ends in terms of its boundaries. Um, the ECOWAS countries now have like NATO and like the EU also have the ability to um, use, you know, use more diplomatic and security tools when necessary. So ECOWAS has 15 countries in it of which now I guess Niger is the fourth country to be kicked out due to the unpopular, well not unpopular, but due to an unconstitutional uh, change of politics <laughs> that have happened in the past two years. Uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea uh, join Niger as being countries that have been kicked out and are sitting on the sidelines right now, but are talking about building their own block, which I don't think will ever happen. Um, for the other three countries, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea, ECOWAS obviously issued sanctions, condemned the constitutional overthrow of those presidents, um, but they kind of take they kind of took a little less heavy hands than they took with Niger. Niger, they threw the book at Niger. And when I mean through the book, I mean, they not only set up sanctions immediately, but they also implemented a no-fly zone and threatened the use of force by any means if 
uh, Bazoom wasn't released within a week's timeline. So we're talking from July 26th at that point to the first week of August. We are obviously now in the second week of August. So it's been three weeks since the coup. And over the weekends, um, the economic, the ECOWAS heads of state met and agreed to uh, mobilize the economic security, uh, the ECOWAS security force. Um, it, I think it's the ECOWAS stabilization force um, to mobilize on the border of Niger um, should Bazoom not be released soon. The deadline for when this mobilization force is going to take, like, is actually going to potentially do anything inside Niger is not totally clear. The chiefs of uh, defense of all the ECOWAS countries met yesterday, but we don't really have an answer as to what's going on. What we do know is that um, the prime minister is in Chad today right now, meeting with um, Chadian authorities to potentially discuss you know, how to bring down hostilities at this point. In response to the threat by ECOWAS on Sunday, the coup submit, uh, put out a communique saying that if anyone enters Nigerian airspace or ground space, uh, they will put, uh, they might not only kill Bazoom himself, but they also decided that they're putting Bazoom on trial for treason, high treason against the state. And, um, what that means to me, Cher, is um, generally that leads to execution. That's what the sentencing is. So we have really reached that point of what I would have called the game theory tree, where we're kind of at the uh, the mutually assured destruction side of things. Um, I think what this means is that Niger is going to have to really aggressively start opening up. The CNSP will have to actually start a dialogue. We know the back channel conversations are obviously taking place, but we are at the point where if ECOWAS doesn't actually take action with what they have threatened to do, they might actually lose more legitimacy in the eyes of other countries, which could be really concerning. Why do you think they took a heavier hand here? So there's a few reasons to this. Niger, first of all, like I said, you have Guinea, Mali, Burkina Faso that are all um, impermissible countries right now that are led by military hunters. And then obviously on the other side of Niger, we have Chad who also had a coup, but it is a country that is more permissible and one that is friendly still to the West and ECOWAS. But then to the other side of that is Sudan, which has recently collapsed as we all know. And then even Ethiopia. Um, so we're talking about an entire Sahel belts that is led by military leaders or you know, uh, leaders that are carrying out undemocratic approaches to dealing with their population at this juncture. Niger was, in my opinion, kind of not with not with enough um, nuance considered in why this was put up on a pedestal this way. But Niger, since I've been working on the country, so since at least 2016, has been the bulwark of stability, the reliable partner for the U.S. and France the country that will steer forward this, you know, new age version of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, um, and be the prized partner and, you know, favorite child of the West in West Africa. It has the, the amount of pressure that I think the Western community has put on Niger to be this perfect kind of like partnership is part of the reason why we are where we are today. But it's also the reason why ECOWAS sees this as a red line. The other reason is, Mali and Burkina Faso have become ostensibly proxy failed states and the jihadist groups that operate there have really managed to advance further south into coastal West Africa. And when I talk about coastal West Africa, I mean specifically Benin, Togo, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, but also Nigeria and now increasingly threatening Senegal as well to the west. 
those countries that never really had a problem and kind of like remained south, you know, like they, that North South divide between them and their Sahel partners really was like a wall, if you will. Um, they're now feeling uh, this jihadist front in their countries. Um, Benin and Togo have had significant upticks in jihadist violence. And uh, Cote d'Ivoire did as well, but mobilized a very significant counterterrorism force there a year ago. Um, so the whole thing was that if Burkina Faso remains this failed state, which it ostensibly is, uh, the government controls less than 60% of the territory of, Niger- of Burkina Faso. Jihadists control the other 40%. Um, if Burkina Faso fully collapses, Niger was the one country that was like an anchor for not just Western security operators, like the massive U.S. and French counterterrorism forces that exist there, but also for ECOWAS and the other countries to kind of anchor and pivot out of when managing the rest of what was the Sahel. So in its absence, we're talking about a huge swath of land that jihadists have already kind of been able to move somewhat through before, but now they'll just be able to move through with absolute impunity. And I think the concern is absolute chaos will rain down on the coast. So do you think there's going to be a war then? Do you think that the, the economic alliance is going to move in and do something here? It's really hard to say what's going to happen. I feel like I'm in uh, undergrad when I was studying game theory right now, and we were playing these game trees. You know, it's like a tabletop exercise right now would be perfect for someone to do. Um, it's hard to say. Um, there's a lot to lose if ECOWAS does send in forces, um, including, and I'm already seeing this on, you know, the propaganda on Telegram and Twitter is wild right now, but there's a lot of, you know, if Togo or Nigeria sends in security forces, the militaries in those countries might mutiny or something like that. Um, there's a lot to lose. Um, I think that this threat is important because it gives ECOWAS um, the ability to more heavily handed um, engage in back channel conversations. And we're not just hopeful those conversations are happening. We know for sure they are with senior members of the junta. And the goal would be to either have them come to terms with the fact that they not only need to release the Zoom, but at least hold transitional elections and then also open themselves up to discussions and engagement with ECOWAS, unlike their partners and brothers in Mali and Burkina Faso who have just put a wall up. Um, but also, um, I know that there is uh, one of the things that people were talking about originally was that ECOWAS was only using this threat to kind of um, foment what would be a coup within a coup. Assuming, and I'm not sure where this stands anymore, but the idea about two weeks ago was that the Nigerian security infrastructure was not fully in lockstep with the junta at that time, although it seems increasingly like they are now, but it's not clear. Um, And as such, there was this idea that if they threw in the threat of a ground invasion, that some of the military itself would be like, fuck this and actually break apart. And um, you'd see like more mutinies within the Nigerian security infrastructure and then potentially a coup within a coup. A lot of that kind of hung on the fact that the guy who is right now the chef d'etat major of the military, uh, General Barmu, is a close friend of the United States and someone that we have worked really closely with. And um, people still, I think, are hope- holding on to the idea that maybe he might at least bring some kind of rationality back to the CNSP, if not actually be someone who drives this uh, potential, I guess, direction. <laughs> That's the way to put it. 
what kind of power can ECOWAS actually bring to bear? I mean, is this a, like a polished military operation, large operation, you know? So they're saying right now that there's about 25,000 soldiers across the represented countries who have contributed to the ECOWAS, to the ESF, the ECOWAS Stabilization Force. I might have that acronym wrong. <laughs> um, most of them are Nigeria, about 11,000 are Ivorian, and then the rest are from respectively, I think, Benin and Senegal. Um, it's a significant force. I don't know the actual numbers on the Nigerian security force, but I think uh, the entire Nigerian... So here's the thing is that Niger can't mobilize its entire security force to manage ECOWAS right now because they're also getting hammered by jihadists in two different corners of their country. And if they, and the jihadists are also tracking these dynamics and these, you know, security and governance vacuums that exist, particularly the governance one has been, we already know that the Islamic State Sahel province, which operates in what we call the Liptako Gorma region, um, which is that corner border space between Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. Um, and then uh, the Al-Qaeda-aligned group called Jamaat Nusrat Al-Wuslamin or something like that. JNIM is the acronym we'll go with. Uh, they are, they're the ones who are actually penetrating the coastal states, but they have the majority of Mali and then parts of southwestern Niger. Um, those two groups are already basically playing with the idea that there is not only a security vacuum in their AORs inside Niger, but also that there is a total governance one. This is one of their recruitment tools. They usually go into communities and play the role of your government doesn't care about you. They've made political decisions that do not include you. And uh, that's why you should work with us because we'll include you in those communal decisions at the community level. And it does work. It's a powerful tool, especially if, you know, you voted for Bazoom and you're some, farmer living in the middle of nowhere in northern Tilbury and uh you know a coup took place and is saying that it was on your behalf but really it's because they went about your vote and decided that you didn't matter <laughs> like that ploy, that ploy is gonna work that said i'm kind of digressing i apologize but um if if the entire i think i don't know what the number is on the nigerian security force it's not too much more than twenty thousand. i can say that and um, if the entire security force were to rally to the front on the southern southwest border to combat ECOWAS, we're talking about the entire country being vulnerable to other threats. And there are many other threats in West Africa. So it would not work out for Niger. It would result in a lot of bloodshed, though. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. We are back on talking about Niger. See, I did it right that time. Can we lean into the digression 
because um, I think that yeah. the the jihadi movements are really important context for this, basically for the entire region. Um, it sounds like it's a big part of why, like, why there needs to be like a, a something like ECOWAS in the country, like why they have a military, and also why France and America have such large presences there, right? Can you tell us? Uh, I hate to do it this way, but can, can you give us like the last 20 years in West Africa? Oof. All right. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to everyone listening in on this one. It's a little bit of a background, but I'll make it as pithy as possible. So in 2009, you have famously uh, the head of the infamous group, Boko Haram, Mohammed Yusuf. Uh, does a civil society protest in northeast Nigeria, this area called Maiduguri, that borders southeastern Niger. It's the Lake Chad Basin region. And he is killed by Nigerian security forces. The group goes cold. And by 2011, the group reemerges under Abubakar Shakao and uh, becomes the Boko Haram that we know of it today. 2014, you have the famous kidnapping of Shibuk schoolgirls in Nigeria. And at that point, we started like on a granular, really the whole group was really kind of just focused on Northeast Nigeria at that point. But on the ground, we started seeing um, more recruitment in Niger, Chad, and Cameroon, the other countries that hug the Lake Chad Basin. By 2016, Niger had had its experienced its first terrorist attack I'm going to use the term terrorist and jihadism intermingled here. So I apologize for those at home listening. Um, but you experienced the first attack by Boko Haram in Niger in the town of Difa. And after that attack in 20, I think it was actually in December of 2015 when the attack happened. And then in 2016, um, you have the government of Niger immediately responded with this full state of emergency, walked down the entire town and essentially said that if you're doing anything, if you're farming peppers by the lake if you're herding your cattle and if you're seen on a motorbike which are all things the 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 livelihood activities were things that were allegedly financing activities of Boko Haram and obviously being on a motorbike just makes you seem quote-unquote shady in West Africa even though everyone does it and uh, the assumption is that maybe you're a jihadist and if you obviously violate the curfew then you might be a jihadist. Uh, so basically they put down this very draconian rule that essentially says if you're doing anything but staying home or going to school, you are a jihadi. And the government responds by going in and rounding up about 1,100 people that you know were alleged to be jihadists at that time aligned with Boko Haram. That includes people who we heard stories of, I was rounded up because I was in a fight with someone and he basically reported me to the authorities saying that I'm a jihadist. So it really was uh, kind of that scene from Monty Python, you know, where they're like, she's a witch, she's a witch. Like that was the joke that we had when I would be down in Diva discussing how we were supposed to manage this, you know, massive influx of detainees. So those guys all get rounded up and thrown in jail. It's important to bring these like weird niche details in because they have all been, re- a lot of them have been released since, and a lot of them have actually been radicalized. They get thrown in a jail called Kutikale and another one called Kolo. This is all 2016, 2017 at this juncture. And so by 2016 and 2017, you have the emergence of jihadist groups on the other side of the country, closer to the capital and the region called Tillaberry, uh, which is kind of deep into the Sahel region. Um, in so the background quickly was that after uh, there was there were 
armed groups that kind of hung out in northern Mali and Algeria in the early 2000s that were um, opposition political groups that got radicalized. Uh, There's a lot more research on this for anyone interested. (laughs) I'm just going to give the top levels. They moved down into Mali after Algeria kicked them out in about 2002 or 2003. Started hanging out, not really doing too much. Uh, Then, you know, Libya blows up and all the arms from Libya after Gaddafi was killed in 2012 um, make their way into Mali, respectively, because at the same time as all these jihadist groups start emerging, you also have a lot of sectarian splits with the ethnic groups in the region. There's an ethnic group in the north called the Tuaregs. Uh, the Tuaregs are those kind of, they've been memorialized in a lot of art and movies as the uh, the horse uh, warriors. They wear the blue turbans and they have big knives and they're actually quite beautiful and they make absolutely beautiful silver. Um, very uh, Lawrence of Arabia because they are actually related to the Bedouins and to the Moors in North Africa. Um, so also, they they're make warrior a Volkswagen tribe. named the Tuareg. Right. The tour is actually named after them because they're they travel across the desert and they like withstand like that long swath of distance and that was kind of the point. But yes, good point. Uh, so the Tuaregs were given kind of back in the day, uh, giving kind of a peace deal with Gaddafi of don't mess with Libya, y'all will be put into prime like prized positions of government, including within the Ministry of Defense and control of the arms arsenal. So when Gaddafi died. Um, a lot of them came down with the arms and brought it into the Sahel in Niger and Mali, respectively. At around the same time, in parallel to that, for years, Niger and Mali, respectively, had been dealing with Tuareg separatist groups that were very militarized and were trying to essentially set up their own country in the north. Um, in Mali, famously, it's called Azawad, and that's where you had these peace negotiations going on for the past decade in Mali. By 2011, Niger had... Um, brokered a peace agreement with the Tuaregs in Niger. And mind you, all these Tuareg groups are somewhat related. Um, so like, you know, whenever you broker these peace agreements like Gaddafi had done in Libya, it was kind of just a, like, some of you will be in senior government positions in order to keep y'all quiet, but have you in a power position. And others were essentially, the loud ones were sent to other countries where shit was still blowing up, like Mali. Uh, so when Mali, when Niger was brokering its peace agreement in 2011, which included demobilizing and reintegrating several square generals into senior government positions that they remained in until July 26th, by the way. And it's important to bring this up because it's going to come back up right now. Um, the other ones were sent over to Mali and continue to fight under the, um, the CMA, which is uh, the movement for Azawad, uh, which was the suffragist group that I met. The government of Mali was fighting the CMA for several years in the north and around Timbuktu and Menaka and Kidal. And then the jihadist groups kind of like came in and threw a wrench into this conflict that was starting to come down in terms of the uh, violence. And they were starting to come to the table and actually have negotiations um, in the mid-aughts. But by 2015, you have what at the time was a few different groups that have all since banned under this Al-Qaeda kind of consortium of JNM, um, they started coming down and getting involved in the conflict uh, and starting their own kind of proxy war on the side of it that ended up being the main focus of what was going on in the Sahel. And that group at the same time had some Tuaregs in it. So it gets very complicated. Those Tuareg militias that were also part of the peace process, but then got sidelined by the peace process because they weren't the right of sub-ethnic group of Sedgeware groups. 
We're also having intercommunal conflict at the same time with a, an ethnic Fulani group that was in Niger, that's in Tillaberry region of Niger, right where the capital is. At the same time as all of this is going on, this ethnic group, the Dao Sahak Tuaregs and the the uh, Tolabe Fulani have had this like century old intercommunal conflict, farmer herder violence, you know, someone's, someone's goat destroys someone's farm. So that farmer goes and kills that guy's daughter in the middle of the night. And then it escalates into, you know, a community war that can bring in other partners. So this intercommunal violence ends up kind of bringing in the um, interest of some of the other Fulani militias in the area, including someone named Adnan Abu al-Walid Sarahi, who at the time had been part of one of the jihadist groups in Mali, but had gotten kicked out for being too extreme. And so he goes to Niger in around 2011, re-brands like, himself. Wait, wait, How do you, what, what, what do you do that's too extreme for other jihadi groups? So you have, this is, okay, so we're talking like maybe around 2000, between 2011 and 2016, globally, you have kind of this originally like uh, the splintering of certain sects in um, Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan of groups that were part of Al-Qaeda that then start splintering and becoming, you know, a little bit more radicalized under the Islamic State, right? So the Islamic State banner has always been a little bit more, it's hard to say that they're more violent or irrational because the Al-Qaeda one's awesome like also can be that way. It's just typically kind of the way we look at it from a binary perspective is the Islamic state is more interested in enforcing a caliphate and by any other means, like by all means necessary. Whereas the Al Qaeda branches have typically, particularly in West Africa have typically done an approach of, you know, we will do an insurgency. We'll co-opt your ways and include it into our ways so that you guys don't feel too, you know, you don't feel like we're oppressing you when we're coming into your community. We'll also marry into your community and bring your, you know, and give everyone a job. So it's a little bit more, it's kind of like if you look at the French versus the British way of colonizing Africa during the 19th century, if you want to put it down that way. One group is more about just like, you know, clearing out an entire community and killing everyone. And another group is more about, no, let's, let's merge so that you all become part of us. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. The British or the Islamic State were the British. No. <laughs> no comments. I already got into this on my CNN interview of uh, fighting with the the newscaster about the French versus the British way of colonizing Africa. And it wasn't, it didn't roll out very well. Anyways. Um, yes. I recognize, feel free to ask me more questions to unpack this very dense kind of history of West Africa's conflict. But essentially this guy named Sarahi who gets kicked out of, what at the time was called the movement for oneness of West African of Islam in West Africa, Mujal. Uh, he goes over, he goes a little bit East towards Niger, uh, meets some other guys who are also, you know, trying to get radicalized. A lot of these people are bandits, by the way, who just don't have any other job, but they've got arms and they're down to like fuck with the community essentially. So, you know, everyone's one ensemble on this one. So he goes to Niger, he meets a few guys and they start, the Islamic State of the Greater Sahel, which is very separate from the IS, the Islamic State faction in the Lake Chad Basin. And that group essentially comes to 
the savior becomes the white saviors, if you will, of this Fulani community that is currently clashing with this Torah group in Mali. So what ends up happening is, you know, the Malian authorities with France go up against the Islamic state in Niger and Niger is sitting there being like, okay, this is in our country. We need to figure out a way to actually not only mitigate the threat to the capital, which is only about a hundred kilometers away, but also figure out a way to kind of like push these guys back into Mali. So that's where you start getting this massive counterterrorism instrument building up around that tri-border region with Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. And that is when you start seeing the influx of counterterrorism money just getting pumped into Niger from the U.S. and why Niger sensibly becomes the centerpiece of the entire region for security assistance from the West. So the U.S. money is going in there sort of for the traditional reason of you stop them there so you don't have to stop them here? I mean, you're talking about a lot of intertribal and mm-hmm. uh inter you know ethnic violence right i mean with a does it have just a sheen of islamic state on top of it i mean yeah do we care i mean do we actually care i mean i know we're pretending we care but do we care here in the united question. states i'll never forget uh sitting in briefings in both washington africom and then also niame with government officials discussing you know with people screaming across the table they're just farmers with pitchforks we do not fucking care about intercommunal violence um but then other people explaining myself being one of them explaining i agree we shouldn't get involved in something like intercommunal violence this is not our war they're not asking for our help that said we do also know that these jihadist groups sit on the sidelines of intercommunal violence and exploit one side over the other and then radicalize more the population and that's how they build their quote not a caliphate in west africa but certainly it's starting to look like one so it's a hard question to answer because and this speaks to kind of why the u.s but not just the u.s the west has really done a poor job at figuring out how to do counterterrorism this isn't a terrorism crisis it's an insurgency in west africa we don't do counterinsurgency well as case in point vietnam um and part of it is for the question that you, you don't have to go ask. that far back Right. Well, like we have, the, we have Afghanistan it, now. There are more recent examples. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's true. Honduras too, by the way. Um, sure. And Colombia. Um, that's true. I think the problem is, is that for your question, this was the question that was being asked in Washington in the halls of State Department. Of at what point do we start to get involved? And no matter what the answer to that is, it was too late, but also too soon because getting involved inevitably triggered a more radical response from the jihadists and not getting involved also allowed the jihadists to just quickly swoop in and take lead. So we've just never been able to figure out how to sequence these types of approaches. Counterinsurgency is just not something the U S knows how to do. We just don't get it. That's the short answer. (laughs) Okay. Does anybody know how to do it? Okay. No, that's, I don't know. If that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a serious question. Matthew. I don't know. I think that's kind of, I'm kind of curious about that. Like what are the counter, what are the counterinsurgency models that work? Do they exist? Who's doing them? It's funny. You should ask me, this is something I've been writing and thinking about for, since I left Niger actually. Um, so one of the things, so the program that I actually did in Niger, which is where I brought up the Lake Chad Basin and Boko Haram, um, is i mean i might be biased here because it was my program but it is in my opinion one of the better approaches to counterinsurgency that's like very low lift 
so to speak. Um, it's not very involved. We, so back to Boko Haram, back to Lake Chad Basin. Uh, so you had this roundup of a bunch of locals who were presumed to be jihadists and thrown in prison. Um, and the community in Difa really freaked out. The local population was like, what the hell is going on? If we so much as walk outside our house, we might get arrested. A lot of people, this is a community that's really hugely based on an uh, agro-pastoral economy. So people leave for like weeks at a time during the rainy season or actually the dry season is when they usually leave because they'll have to travel to where the lake and the river is to be able to do fishing and grazing and all that. So a lot of people were literally gone during that winter when it is the dry season in Niger and come came back to town and there's this state of emergency and they were told by people on the way back into town that, listen, if you go into Tifa right now, that you're going to get arrested because they're going to assume that you were at the lake and you were at Boko Haram. So what ended up happening in 2016, immediately after these roundups happened, was um, a lot of the local mayors, uh, specifically it was the mayor of Timor, who, which is a small town right on Lake Chad in Niger. It's like the furthest out town that you can get to. Um, he started quietly letting people come and hide in his house until he could figure out what to do with these guys because everyone was worried they were going to get either round up and killed or thrown in jail. So he reaches out to the governor of Difa. They figure out a way to basically build out the nascent, uh, like a nascent defections pipeline. So telling, letting people know through word of mouth or text message that like, hey, you can come home. You just have to come home through this kind of like underground railroad type of thing. Um, otherwise, the, if the police or the military see you, they might kill you. So they start getting numbers of people just coming back. And then what ended up happening was actual Boko Haram combatants started defecting realizing that if they voluntarily surrendered, there might be a way by which they won't, you know, they could go home. And you have to understand that before these conflicts started, like I said, intercommunal conflict is something that has been going on in West Africa, in Africa since the beginning of time. So like the deepened population historically, like 400 years ago was um, famous for being a group of people where the mothers would send their sons to be warriors and battles that were taking place in central and southern africa and then they come home with the riches and fuse it back into deep in society like we're talking about a warrior culture in the first place so like it's inherently part of their vibe to also get involved in intercommunal tension especially if it's political so a lot of these people didn't realize that they were getting involved in a jihadist group they just thought they were participating in political activities or making money fighting on behalf of someone else so essentially what ends up happening is a lot of people who are like i didn't mean to be branded as a terrorist start coming through this pipeline. And that's when the Nigerian government reached out to the U.S. for assistance. They reached out first to the U.N. and the U.N. reached out to us. And that was what I was working on. So what we did was we built a legal framework in Niger's penal code, which may or may not get undone by this penta, by the way, um, that essentially said that if you either provide intelligence to the government that allows them to bust a jihadist cell or a criminal cell, because uh, we wanted to expand it to include criminal activity once the global war on terror ended. Um, if you provide preemptive intelligence, if you provide in intelligence that allows the security forces to preemptively stop an attack, or if you haven't committed any kind of violence, well, I was specifically crime against humanity or a war crime, then if you voluntarily surrender, you are granted amnesty according to Niger's penal code. And then you just have to go through like essentially a rehabilitation process, which is about three months where they kind of get desensitized. There's some psychosocial support, particularly for women and children. And then 
um, they get re uh, reintegrated back into society. So this framework worked. We got thousands of defectors in the issue. It was awesome. Uh, we actually were able to almost get an entire defection of around 2,000 Boko Haram combatants under uh, one of the main commanders, Mama Noor, back in 2018. But for reasons I can't go into on this podcast, it didn't work out. Um, but it was really cool. And it was watching a counterinsurgency process in full adult one, because it really was led by the local population. And that's kind of the point that I'm getting at is that one of the things I'm focused on is trying to promote the idea that if we really want to do better counterterrorism, we need to do population centric counter counterinsurgency work. It needs to be driven by the civilians. They need to be the ones that are like on the front lines, promoting people to not only non-kinetically leave the battlefields, but then also providing the intelligence and reconnaissance to security forces so that they can better navigate these non-permissive environments that oftentimes security forces in Africa just don't know because a lot of these security forces don't have the capacity to do or you know, not only do force protection, but also like move forward. Um yeah, that's the that that that's the short end of what I see as a productive counterinsurgency approach. <laughs> Uh, I just have uh, one more question, Matthew. You may have more, but um, is there a worry that the coup is more uh, in favor of Boko Haram or that they are, uh, you know, in some way going to be pro-Islamic insurgency or something like that? No, no. If anything, what we've seen is, yeah, taking it back to the to this coup, um, so a lot of these kind of novel approaches to dealing with counterterrorism, which included uh, Bazoom really taking taking this process that I just explained with Boko Haram and using it uh, for a means by which they can open negotiation and dialogue with jihadist groups. Um, this was not liked by some of the senior like security elites. They felt strongly kind of in an old school way of, um, you know, the only way to deal with a terrorist is to kill them or throw them in jail. So what I've understood, although we haven't really seen it yet, is that there have been peace deals brokered with uh, some of the senior commanders of both the Islamic State Sahel province and Jainan in Mali and Burkina Faso under Bazoom, which is why things have actually been quite secure in Niger over the past year and a half. There was a lot of violence in Tilbury, um, and then under Bazoom's tenure, the violence actually came down really, really fast. Um so this whole notion that, you know, the coup is putting up, the hunter has been saying on TV that, you know, we did this because things have been unstable. It's, it's nonsense. It's not true. Things have actually been more stable than ever before based on these negotiations that were taking place. Um, it's my understanding that all the people who were involved in those negotiations, because, you know, this is Africa and things are most, mostly personal instead of like institutionalized. Although I have to say this, same thing goes for the U.S. approach to things as well. Um, all those people who had been leading those negotiations with jihadists that had led to somewhat of cessation of hostilities, all those people had been removed from office. And the people in charge of the junta do not have those relationships. So if anything, it's the opposite. It's not that Bazoum and his guys were in bed with jihadists. It's that they understood that this counterinsurgency approach was more important and was the only way it was going to work. Um, the new junta thinks that a more securitized military approach is going to be successful. This is similar to what we're seeing the junta leaders in Mali and Burkina Faso doing. But also, if you're tracking Mali and Burkina Faso, those countries have gotten increased dramatically worse over the past two years since their juntas came into power. Mostly because the securitized approach is and only is 
usually an air invasion and a ground force that does a full clearing operation where they massacre everyone, assuming that everyone is a jihadist. And that creates crippling grievances among the local population, which means that the jihadists can then recruit. The jihadists are so well networked with their intelligence networks across the region that they know ahead of time generally when a clearing operation is about to take place. So they can usually leave, which just usually leaves civilians to get killed by the jihadists at that point. So all I can, so the long end of that answer is yes. Um, I think this, if this military junta does the same thing that Molly Burkina Faso do, which kind of looks, it looks like that's what they're doing, then we should anticipate a lot more violence and an uptick in jihadism. I have a couple more. If you've got a, a minute, I've, I've got the yeah, annoying question. All, all that's left for me are the really annoying questions. <laughs> um, so in April we had Matt Gates, uh, uh, kind of going after Africa, the AFRICOM chief in uh, a testimony. And he kind of asked the question, like, why, why do so many of the military guys that America trains in Africa do coups? Are we responsible for that? Kind of not quite no. voicing a conspiracy theory, but, but dancing next to it. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I understand why this question gets asked because it looks bad. Uh, it's it's trying to make a connection when there's no connection there. The reason these guys end up leading the coups, whoever they are, is because they are already in positions of power and they're educated. So what is the alternative to this? Not putting a meritocracy in place and not educating these military leaders because we're worried they're going to do a coup. Um, what you see when a coup takes place in most of these countries, and this goes for Burkina and Mali as well, was... The senior advice, the, these, these military officials see insecurity taking place and they see corruption within the government and they think it's time to take things into their own hands. They're not using the tools the U.S. gave them. It's just it happens to be that they're most educated and they might be in positions of power because we helped put them in those positions of power by training and educating them. What about... Um these are maybe bigger questions than, than we've got time for, but I want to ask, uh, what about, uh, Wagner and China? So the Wagner group, the only thing we have right now is one report that put out that Modi, who is number two in the coup, general Modi, uh, that he went to Mali in March, um, to essentially build out some kind of pipeline of a conversation with Mali about, all right, you know, we share a border, we share a jihadist conflict, let's talk and maybe collaborate down the line. And allegedly Wagner people or representation was in the room during those meetings. Anything else that's being said about Wagner's participation in the Nigerian coup is mostly speculation at this point. We don't have any evidence of anything else. What we do know is that Wagner loves to exploit these types of situations. And, um, they pretty much have gotten free press from all the useful idiots on the internet that are putting out there that Wagner is active in Niger right now. Good for them. <laughs> but, you know, unlike Mali, Niger doesn't really have the same type of resources. Mali has a lot of gold. Mali and Burkina Faso have more untapped gold reserves combined between those two countries than any other place on the face of the planet. So they do have a lot of resources that you could potentially leverage to pay something like Wagner or someone else. Niger doesn't really have the same type of resources and the things that they did have, like the two oil pipelines to bring China into it. China just left uh, both the Kadaji dam. They just abandoned it because their staff were 
it was a Chinese private company, but it was, you know, private public owned, uh, because of the, you know, fact that people were going to be stuck there due to the sanctions and the flight cancellations. So a lot of those, um, resources and potential resources, it looks like they've all been paused. So I'm not really sure they're going to be able to produce much money at this point for to pay someone like Wagner. I do not see Wagner stepping into Niger right now. That's the short end. The other piece is there's been a lot to talk about Wagner going into Burkina Faso for the past year. They have not. I would assume they'd go into Burkina before they'd go into Niger, but maybe I'm wrong on that. But all that's to say is I think it's a lot of talk and not a lot of walk. As for China, China has a lot of investments in infrastructure development and the extractives, uh, specifically the two oil pipelines. Uh, Sonadep is a Nigerian national-owned Nigerian company that's co-financed and owned by China. Uh, that's the pipeline from Nigeria to Niger. And then there's the Benin Niger pipeline. I'm not sure what China has actually been active on that, if anything, but both pipelines were under construction and due to be finished. And both are obviously paused due to the ECOWAS sanctions. And then the Kadaji Dam, which was going to be like the largest dam in West Africa, I believe, also was due to be finished and has formally been stopped uh, due to the coup. So it's my understanding that China. Turkey, the Emirates, India, these countries don't necessarily fall in lockstep with the West when we pull everything out during a coup. But right now, everything seems to be paused. But I would assume China will resume its activities there. Annalise Bernard, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through this. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like us, if you really like us, please consider giving uh, to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com, where for a mere $9 a month, you get commercial-free early versions of the mainline episodes and some bonus episodes. Uh, Jason's in town, and we're going to record a bonus episode uh, soon. I'm going to take a trip little historical trip we're gonna we're gonna have a conversation about it afterwards so you can look forward to that popping up soon again that's angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com nine dollars a month it really helps uh, we we love it it helps us keep doing the show it really uh, helps us and we really appreciate it uh, we will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet stay safe until then Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.